accept trying to phrase it accept accept failure as part of the success does it make sense hello everybody and welcome to the mentors podcast i'm your host ava wetrick here on this show we talk to luminaries from around the world to discuss their journey towards success and what wisdom they have to offer the younger generation each episode we have on a new guest a new story and a new path towards personal success i hope you're ready and i hope you enjoy Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Mentors. Today we have on Arie Brish. Arie is the founder and CEO of CXO360 and is an expert on the field of innovation and commercialization. He wrote the bestseller business book, Lay an Egg and Make Chicken Soup. For years, Arie has been a mentor to dozens of startups, companies, and various Fortune 500 companies, helping them all scale and commercialize their businesses. I was very excited to have on REA because he brings numbers and facts to the table. In this podcast, he really dives into the nuts and bolts of how to commercialize, innovate, and grow a company. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Mentors. Today, we have on REA Brish. REA, thank you so much for being on. Thanks for having me, Eva. I am. So I always start off with the same question for all of my guests. What is your origin story? Um, who were you then and how did you become who you are now? Okay, that's a good question. Let me, let me <laughs> dial back uh, uh, just a few years. So I, I started, I'll, I'll tell you a story, okay, that kind of set the stage uh, for, for the, the entire future years. So in I, I grew up in Israel and, and when I had to make the choice uh, where to go to school, that was in the early 70s. It was the middle of the oil, uh, of the energy crisis in the world. The, the, the government of Israel decided to accelerate having a, a power plant, uh, electrical power plant uh, powered by uh, nuclear energy. So in order to accelerate training people, they, they started the undergraduate a class for for power engineer for uh, uh, nuclear engineering and, and normally nuclear engineering i don't know about today but back in the days it was only a, a graduate uh, class so i said that's something new i love it uh, i'm going to do it just because the only reason because it's new okay so my choice was go and and and, and it was a remote school so we had to move and and we started this uh, nuclear engineering uh, curriculum and then a uh, couple of semesters later the, the government changed the plan i think the oil prices you know fluctuates and they decided to not do the nuclear uh, power plant and they they canceled our class so the school felt bad they came to us and said okay kids oh kids we were in our 20 i guess Okay, kids, we screw you. So you can now, and, and you came to this remote town. Now you can choose any 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 school you want uh, without any acceptance test. You you were already accepted to the nuclear engineering, so we let you choose whatever you want. Uh, and I, I scratched my head. I didn't know what to choose, uh, but then they helped me. They came a week later and said, "Oh, oops, sorry, we misled you again." You can choose anything you want except of electrical engineering. You have to requalify for electrical engineering. So that made my decision or my choice very easy. I said, okay, you you, you said electrical engineering need to requalify. I will go for electrical engineering. 
I did not have a clue of why or what, what electrical engineering is doing day to day. But the only reason I chose it is because they said you have to qualify everything else. You, you can enter without qualifying. So sometimes you you make life <laughs> life decision just because just a matter of to prove a point to somebody. So it, it was just shooting from the hip to prove them wrong that I can qualify for electrical engineering. <clears throat> so dial a few few years into into the program, the the one thing that was pretty new at the time that's late seventies was a computer engineering and semiconductor. So that was the beginning of microprocessors and the beginning of personal computers, even though it, it was not that pervasive at the time. It was just something that we engineers talked about, that this is something that is going to happen in the next 10 or 15 years, a new revolution. Everybody will have a computer on the on their desk that was totally totally crazy idea the computers were big mainframes hiding behind walls and and what have you uh, so once again I, I took my specialty in, in electrical engineering to be in micro micro processors micro computers and semiconductors <clears throat> and and um, my first job after that i mean after i graduated my first job was designing one of the very first microprocessors in the industry so uh, and, and that will lead the, the the next chapter of this story will lead to the the book i wrote that it's kind of there is a connection there so it was totally new at the time it's like today doing uh, i don't know uh, self-driving car or artificial intelligence it was something totally new nobody nobody knew what the industry or what life is going to be 20 years later when this thing we called actually we called it um, microcomputers at the time the the world personal computer was coined or invented only a few years later wow that's incredible you were definitely on the bleeding edge of technology helping to create something phenomenal yes that that was definitely the case you know people didn't even know what i'm working about i, I tried to explain to my family and friends what i'm doing and <laughs> nobody understood i don't blame them i don't blame them i bet some phenomenal scientist came up to me and said i'm working on a high-tech project i'd be like i have i will listen i have no idea what you mean though <laughs> yeah exactly exactly and then what made the transition over to into like the startup life into business and uh, you know how did you go from you know, on the bleeding edge of technology to uh, the business realm? Um, that's another another kind of personal story. You know, I, I during my college years, I used to be uh, used to kind of pay my 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 way through by being a lifeguard in a swimming pool. We talked about that a little bit. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and th that was a college town. So many, many of the People that came to enjoy that swimming pool were university professors, and and they would hang up with a with a lifeguard and just chit chat and over a beer. So, one of these professors, you know, was sitting with me, was sitting talking and talking about what's next after undergraduate, and I 
told him maybe I'll go and do a master in electrical engineering again or something. And he said, no, you better go and do an MBA or something like that because the combination of engineering and MBA will be or is very powerful when you get promoted in, in, in the organizations. And, and back then, the startup was not... Uh, very popular so basically you start your job in a big company and you just advance uh, and being promoted every few years so he said if you want to be promoted you better go and do an MBA instead of a, another master in electrical engineering and and you know after the fact uh, many years later looking back he, he was totally right so I started my MBA and in parallel of of you know, right after my graduation, I, I started to work as a microprocessor designer, designing uh, one of the very first microprocessor. And in the evenings, I, I started to take my MBA classes uh, very quickly. And that's kind of jumping into the topic of the book. Uh, so as a young R&D engineer, um, all you think about is perfecting your product. So finally, after two or three years of R&D efforts, we, we had to take it into production, launch the marketing, uh, take it to the market, to the to the basically the market. Uh, and and my engineering job was in Israel, but then they needed somebody to go uh, relocate to the Silicon Valley to support all the uh, commercialization efforts and that basically two things one is support transfer to production and one is supporting the marketing and, and customers uh, so they they transferred me relocated me to silicon valley and and then i realized how much work uh, there is in post r d in order to make a product a commercial success and and our product was Probably five years ahead of competition, our two main competitors were uh, Motorola and Intel. And uh, even though our product was superior, Motorola and Intel did a much better job in the commercialization uh, part. And, and they basically won the entire PC market. Intel won the IBM PC at the time. And Motorola won, uh, the Motorola microprocessor won the Apple computer or the Apple personal computers at the time, and, and uh, my company stayed behind only because even though the product was superior, uh, we lost the personal computer race because our two other competitors executed better on the commercialization phase. And that's basically the focus of my entire book. By the way, the book is Lay an Egg and Make Chicken Soup. It became a bestseller, and the focus is on the execution of the commercialization. Uh, coming up, and, and you mentioned your, your audience are uh, mostly young people, Generation Z. Coming up with a great idea is something that it's probably inherent in a young age because you're not boxed yet in, in whatever preconceived box it is. Uh, when I work for the corporate world, I like always to have interns because because of the same reason that they are not boxed, so they come up with always with with good ideas, and and you just filter the good ideas and uh, run with it. Uh, 
so the the young age is 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 good for making good ideas out of the box ideas or new paradigms but then uh, the the bad news at the young age you don't have the experience and the and the and the scars uh, uh, to know what obstacles are, are waiting for you and and so the combination the combination of being creative and, and generating uh, good ideas and then having somebody that guide you on the execution phase it's a, it's a winning combination and and you can do it in in two ways one one way we discussed before the call uh, you can do it by having experienced mentors the other way is what michael dell when uh, did when he started Dell computer he, he was a young college guy but all his lieutenants all his vice presidents were very experienced people so he was smart enough to say i don't know anything about execution let me hire experienced people so he was like 25 years ceo and, and all his vice presidents were in their 40s and 50s and and that's i think one of the reasons that he had a great idea at the time but one of the reasons he succeeded in growing the company to where it is today is the fact that he realized that he needs all these experienced people to help him launch the uh, his great idea absolutely absolutely and i know for a fact that you've been a mentor to dozens if not hundreds mm -hmm. and thousands because yeah. of your book mm -hmm. over the course of many years right. um not only you know with all of the mentorship experience that you have had in your time, especially when uh, all of it comes down to commercialization, uh, what does commercialization look like? And how did you innovate the process of that? And how have you, like, what are some of the tips and tricks you've gained to really allow a startup or a product to take off? So from, from a, a, a mentorship point of view, the, let me step back a little. Uh, so if, if again, uh, talking about my book again, the, the structure of the book is every chapter is a discipline in the commercialization process. And, and the book has, I don't remember, 20 or 30 chapters. Here it is. Let me check. Yeah, 22 chapters. The book has 22 chapters. The structure of the book, each chapter is one discipline in the process. So you, you can think about the book as a checklist and, and you, can, you can have only the checklist uh, as a free uh, download on my, on my website. But the, the, the book gives a little more color to it. The structure is every chapter in the check, so-called checklist, every chapter starts with two or three pages of describing that particular discipline and, and how to connect it or how it's related to the um, innovation commercialization and then few real-life examples of either lesson learned some are mis bad lessons some are, are good lessons uh, so once you take this checklist or the book consider every chapter in the book to be a chapter in your business plan so you need to when you come up with a new idea you say okay now what uh, how do i manage r d 
uh, how do I market? How do I launch? How do I partner with ecosystem, with the entire ecosystem? That's another uh, very important part of of being successful is is get the ecosystem buy-in into your new idea. Some new ideas can be launched without an ecosystem support, but in, in many cases, you must have the ecosystem supporting you. Absolutely. What is the ecosystem and what does that look like and how do you get them to support you? Okay, example. One of my projects was in, in the air conditioning space. Uh, a new concept of... of Air condition just for the purpose of of, of this discussion. Uh, so uh, the things first of all, part of the ecosystem obviously is customers. So you need to talk to customers. Another part of the ecosystem is suppliers. And if you have something totally new, you, the suppliers, the components you need for your new idea or new product. Uh, uh, Again, you have to work with suppliers to build the, the building blocks for your service or, or, or product. But then, in the case of this air conditioning uh, product, uh, there is air conditioning codes. How to design air conditions for the building and, and whatever per square feet you need so much air conditioning power, blah, blah, blah. Our product was basically allow you to use less air condition for the same size building, thus saving significant energy, electrical bill for the building. And in commercial buildings, the electrical bills could be millions of dollars per year. So the, the, if you save 20, 30%, that's a big, big chunk of money. But the code for the air condition did not support our new idea. So you had to work with uh, the bodies that you know uh, approve different different ways of doing things and and get the, uh, their approval to deviate from the code or to in other words to add our our concept or our paradigm into the allowed engineering code so engineers that design uh, air condition for buildings will feel comfortable or will be empowered or, or, or to use our new new technology. So it sounds simple, but it took two or three years to change the building codes to where it can accommodate our new uh, paradigm. But then uh, there are different government agencies that you need to negotiate. And sometimes you have to negotiate almost every every city I'll, I'll tell you an, an example. Uber, Uber is a more 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 uh, familiar brand. I don't know if they operate in your geography. I know in Austin, they had hard time to penetrate the Austin market. The only reason is the lobby of the taxis lobby was strong enough with the city council that. The city council did not allow Uber to uh, come into the Austin market. The excuse at the time was uh, the background check on how to do background check for the drivers. 
So Uber had their own way to do a background check for the drivers. Uh, City of Austin said, no, we do not accept this background check. Uh, and and there, it took them a year to negotiate the, the, the approved background check that will allow them to operate in the Austin market. I don't remember exactly what compromise they got into, but they have to go and do it in every city. That's a lot of resources. They probably have to have dozens of people to go and knock on the door of every city and uh, uh, you know be allowed to operate in those cities. So pe people don't realize that, but that takes a lot of work. So everybody will agree Uber is a great idea, but then just to negotiate with every city council, that, that, that's so many resources on, on their part. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And when you were discussing the situation with Uber and the air conditioners, it sounded like a lot of it was influenced by, like, not, it wasn't an emotional decision, but it was influenced by emotion. You know, people want to feel safe, people want to feel comfortable, people make, want to make sure everything is right. How, how do you go in with a very logical mindset, with very logical people, and influence their emotions in the best way possible with your product or with your service that you're providing? That's an excellent question. So first of all, for the, for the, in the Uber situation, it, it was more a political pressure by the lobby of the traditional taxis and the traditional bus uh, transportation so they had pretty strong lobby to uh, uh, pressure the city council uh, to put some obstacles on on uber we see a similar thing by the way in austin now where the hotels lobby uh, put some pressure against airbnb and and there are some issues with the with the austin city that some discussions about uh, putting some obstacles against Airbnb, for example. For, and it's totally because of the political pressures of the hotel industry. So going back to your question, in many cases, there, there are... Well, emotional products are... are Obvious, a pure emotional product is uh, uh, jewelry. For example, if, if you buy jewelry to your mom for Mother's Day, that's an emotional thing. She can continue to live without this jewelry for forever, and, but you buy a jewelry, that's an emotional gift. There are many functional products that the uh, decision to buy them are emotional. For example, uh, cage-free eggs. I don't know if you buy eggs for your school dorms, but cage-free eggs cost about three times more expensive than traditional caged chicken eggs. But more and more people, I know I pay, I pay this premium just because I, I feel sorry for the chickens. And it's becoming more and more popular. People buy I don't know the most recent numbers, but in Europe, more than 50% of the eggs in the market are coming from cage-free uh, chicken farms. 
and and the, this the the motivation there is is mainly emotional there, there is no studies yet it's too new there is no studies yet that prove that cage-free eggs are more healthy or better for you or whatever it is it's totally unproven yet people buy the cage-free eggs just because they feel sorry for the chickens in the cage uh, so Europe is ahead of the U.S. in that, but even in the U.S. It, it's becoming more and more popular. I know for, for me, I buy only cage-free eggs, even though uh, they are more expensive. So th this is a simple example of um, putting emotional, emotional considerations or emotional motivations in buying a functional product. You buy eggs because you want to eat the eggs. You, you don't buy eggs to for emotional reasons you buy the cage-free eggs for you prefer to buy cage-free eggs for emotional reason uh, i'll give you uh, another example from the b2b business to business so you, you think okay you buy eggs for emotional reasons that's that's easy that's uh, one person emotions but you you think that when you do business between businesses one company a sells a service to company b the the buy <clears throat> excuse me the buyers or the engineers in company b the decision makers you would think that they make their <clears throat> decision only based on functional or, or objective motivation and and that's maybe theoretically that's true I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples where this is not the case <clears throat> uh, and, and one one example one one new product we had when I used to work at Motorola so that's a large corporation our customers were or the the, the decision makers the buying decision makers were engineers at our customers <clears throat> customers uh, uh, companies so we sold to general motors we sold to ibm so big large corporations were engineers making the decision whether you know technology x to buy technology x or technology y so we we developed technology y that was different than technology x but the <clears throat> promotional theme that we used when we launched the product was almost like scaring the engineers <clears throat> we use scared strategy scaring the engineers that if they do not learn how to use technology why they will be professionally obsolete in few years and and that worked phenomenally well we it was a super successful uh, launch of a new technology and and the main the main campaign was around talking to the engineers <clears throat> career motivation and and scaring the scaring them that without educating themselves uh, in this new technology why call it why for the purpose of this uh, conversation uh, uh, they will be obsolete and it will be a big big gap in the resume five years later and and it was a phenomenal phenomenal uh, uh, success uh, a different example <clears throat> again real life 
when you come to trying to sell a new product to somebody sometime uh, again in a business to business environment the customer has to put some efforts and extra hours in evaluating this new product so uh, one of my customers that i knocked on their door the, the guy told me I, I love your product but i like to be at three o'clock in my son in my grandson's uh, soccer game or soccer practice so I'm not going to spend the extra hours required to evaluate your product. So thank you very much. So that's another that's a, a, an emotional emotional motivation to not accept my new product at, at the time. So there, this is another example, and and that's again once again it's a bit to be. It's always very important to take an emotional consideration for the entire ecosystem like Arya described, and it's definitely something to ponder on until part two of this interview, which comes out tomorrow. Be sure to stay tuned for how to best influence these emotions, Arya's advice to young startups and young CEOs.